0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show, that's TonyFletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. In order to
1: vanquish the state, you have to take on some of its own methods. You know, and it's a sobering thought, and it 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 it, it, it shows the limitations of that kind of radicalism. You know, that I was involved in with a narco punk <laughs>
0: I mean the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it'd been put together and the punk way it'd been put together quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? Hey one and all, and welcome to episode 14 of the Jamming Fanzine podcast, or as we can just call it now, the Fanzine podcast, in which it's much less about the music fanzine that I ran in my wayward youth, and much more about the, for now, music fanzines that other people ran in their wayward youths. And my guest today, and it's a singular guest again, is Mike Dybal, who published, printed, wrote, edited... Toxic Graffiti fanzine back in those days, and uh, his fanzine was, if you know it, and even if you don't, it's true either way, very closely associated with uh, the anarcho punk movement. He was probably the leading zine of that kind, and again, very closely associated with the brand Crass, who in fact supplied a flexi-disc for one of its issues, which probably outsold probably almost any other fanzine that I'm ever going to be able to talk about on this particular show, including uh, including even jamming at its most commercial and successful. I had not intended Crass to be a constant theme in this second series season, but I do think it speaks to their um, enormous influence and impact on the do-it-yourself culture of that time, of which, of course, fanzines were such an integral part um, equally, I do generally like having interviews here sort of round table, doubled up. I've enjoyed having two to three guests at a time. And if you were wondering about the slight delay, well, it's actually a whole month delay in this episode coming out, it's because we did actually try that with Mike. And I had him on a call with Tom Vague, if you remember Vague Fanzine. Tom's got a great compendium of Vague um, coming out any day now, I do believe. Uh, But unfortunately, we had just like really rare, but really bad audio issues. And ultimately had to abandon that interview. I was heading over to the UK, uh, so I was actually able to conduct the interview with Mike in person in Brighton, where our podcast interview was done in a small business-like pod at the top of Brighton Library. So my thanks to Brighton Council, I guess, for being very accommodating when I walked in and asked if they had a room for us, and of course, it turns out they did. And I do need to put out a trigger warning for the first time. It's the kind of thing we didn't have back in the day, which Mike talks about. We had no sense at school of sensitivity or therapy of any kind of uh, emotional support. But uh, Mike describes uh, witnessing death as... Uh, a couple of times over in this episode it is in detail and I just want you to be forewarned Uh, there's also some swearing but I did tick the e for explicit box in my podcast platform so uh, you're already forewarned on that one It's important stuff, and you maybe got a little sense of it from the soundbite I put up top of this particular episode, but essentially later in life, Mike found himself in the Middle East and uh, witnessed uh, the reality of something that we, and particularly he, would have written about back in his toxic graffiti days, the sort of desire for a revolution, and uh, comparing that to the reality of what he witnessed is, you know, a journey of a life Uh, that goes from one, one place of idealism to another of reality. I can't leave without tipping you off for the next episode. I am tempting fate because we haven't done the interview yet, but it's going to be conducted any day, and I don't see a reason for it not to happen. He says knocking on his desk for wood. It's going to be with Mickey Berenji, who ran a fanzine called Alphabet Soup in the 80s, along with her best friend, Emma. And the two of them then went off to form a band called Lush that you may have heard of. And that interview will be alongside Claire Wadd, who ran a fanzine called cavach in the 80s. And she went off to run a record label called Sarah Records that you may have heard of. I'm enormously looking forward to this, partly because we actually don't know each other, none of us. And also because it takes me away from that late 70s, early 80s that's been sort of the crux and the core of the podcast so far and it takes me and us away from the essentially boys club that was music journalism and indeed fanzine publishing uh for far too long and i'm looking forward to talking about all of those aspects so join us in another month when that episode comes along i'll see you at the back end or you'll hear from me at the back end of this particular episode just to give you some credits etc and in the meantime bloody revolutions with mike Dival of toxic graffiti I'm going to take us all the way back Mm. and I'm going to say that I remember Toxic Graffiti at its peak um, and I remember it being a major fanzine as being a very anarchist and peace fanzine Mm, mm. Uh, and would that be a fair assumption on my part?
1: Yeah, it more or less started like that. Before that, I'd done No Reason, which was more or less, you know, know, 50 Shades of Sniffing Glue. There were so many (laughs) zines like that at the time. At that time... Uh, punk anarchism, I don't think anyone used an narco punk term, um, but it was kind of at its beginnings with Crass Boys and Girls, Epileptics, and a few other bands. Um, it seemed a, a fairly, to me, it seemed, you know, a fairly logical outgrowth of area that punk would expand into, you know, uh, coming on from anarchy, as in in the UK, to anarchism seemed to be quite a short step to make. It was also kind of engaging at a bit more of a grassroots level. Um, with the kind of uh, left wing politics you got through Clash and the Ruts, right. you know, uh, but far more of a DIY scene. Uh, it was a time, particularly after the election of Thatcher and then following that, Reagan, where the Cold War hotted up quite dangerously. You know, so those whole issues around peace and anti militarism that had kind of been in the background since probably the mid 60s, I'm a bit too young to remember, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, come very much back to the Four. They did
0: come they did come back to the fore with mm. with 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 the uh, with both those elections. So actually we should pin was the first issue post or pre Thatcher's May seventy. Pre Thatcher. Right. Late seventy eight? Uh
1: it would have been the autumn, I think, of no, maybe the summer I think of seventy eight. Right. Um, because I did one of the early crass interviews in uh, the autumn of seventy. 70- the same year seventy-eight. Right. That's uh, pretty
0: I mean that's, mm. that's pretty early. Um but you know, I remember it being major sort of in the seventy-nine, eighty mm. period. And um, I think any of us who were doing fanzine in seventy-seven, seventy-eight were were relatively oh. early in the punk new wave thing. It might not have seemed it at the, at the time. Mm. Um I I also have a memory of uh Toxic Graffiti's, despite the Anarchy and Peace, I remember you being very uh, um, militant sort of in your Beliefs, and um, I don't know if that's how you describe yourself. I've got to say, yeah, with us meeting in person, uh, <laughs> you look like somebody who wouldn't say boo to a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Do we all mellow with age? Were you like that? I want to oh. just set the set the scene for us. I had the same thing with Tony D, by the way. Oh, yeah, who, you know, you just thought it was this in your face punk rocker, <laughs> and at his current age, in his early 60s, like Swedish mellowist, you know, person. 64,
1: um, <laughs> uh, mid 60s, uh, uh. Yeah, I've mellowed a lot with age and also experience as well. And we'll probably come back to the whole thing about you know writing about revolution almost as a kind of fantasy. You know, yeah. I, I don't think we saw it as a fantasy in the day. You know, we were quite sincere about what we were doing. But looking back, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, we didn't. Know we were like virgins bragging about sex behind the bike shed at school. Mm-hmm. You know, really, and 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 to see those things in real. Happen right. before your eyes with all kinds of consequences, you know. Uh, if one of the life experiences has probably made me mellow out and chill out, the part right. of the fact that as you get older, you get a little bit more intense. Because if I think either of us kept walking around acting and talking like you know when we were 16, 17, 18, we probably would have been locked up by now.
0: You also get to look a bit ridiculous, sir. so yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. that's what you're getting at. You know, yeah. you've you've got to do a certain amount of. Mm of growing up. So we're going to talk a lot as you just hinted at there about uh life after fanzines. Uh, I think that was a theme we mm. we kind of settled in on because you know a lot of us did our fanzines for what felt like our entire adult lives mm. until we stopped doing them and got on with adulthood and then mm. we we we've, we've had further lives that have clearly been influenced, you know, as a the as a result of what we did with our fanzines. But maybe, maybe though, though before we get to life after fanzines, your, your life before a fanzine, it's its fascinating for everybody. Now, well, Ooh. you know, who were you? Were you in the mix? Were you in the middle of the London punk scene? Were you a suburban kid? Um, and what, what inspired you? Were you a punk rocker in 76? Did you have to wait? How old were you in 77, maybe? You
1: know? uh, my, in 77, I was 18. Okay. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, my parents had moved out. Uh, from South London um, to West Kent, fairly well-to-do part of West Kent. My dad was a small businessman. He had a small chain of record shops in South London and a TV rental, later video rental company. You know, uh, And he was doing reasonably well for himself until big chains like Granada and Tower and Virgin sort of did for that whole sect- uh, sector. Uh, so I grew up there uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and went to a local school. Uh, uh, As I got into my teens, my first passion... My dad used to bring back lots and lots of records, Mm -hmm. particularly stuff that wouldn't sell. And a lot of the stuff that wouldn't sell um, would be like, you know, really interesting proto-punk stuff, you you know, stuff like the original Stooges album. And he goes, oh, this has been hanging around for few years in Stockholm it stands up the like the Stockholm crap you'd like land you know so I kind of you know uh, 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 quite a bit of reggae and obviously for that time a lot of prog you know so so I, I grew up with quite an you know quite an interesting taste you know in my earlier to mid-teens in music that was quite different to the sort of chart stuff um, that most people would have grown up with um, uh, uh, in terms of youth culture and that, the first thing I really got engaged with, in fact, I still am engaged with it, is motorbikes. Mm. You know, which has been a passion of my life. I see riding very much. It's like a kind of zen-like experience. It sort of puts you in the moment. It shuts down that part mm-hmm. of your mind that overthinks. Um, uh, uh, and so. <sighs> when did you start riding? Uh, in December 74. When you were fifteen, sixteen? Uh I was just short of my sixteenth birthday, wow. which made it slightly illegal. Um wow. before that before that I used to ride um uh, field bikes, like sort of done up old um um ex post office uh, telegram bikes, BFA right. bands and things sort of done up with trials tires. Um, you you when we
0: were talking on the phone prepping hmm. for this you told me a, a pretty horrific story mm. that obviously had a major impact mm. on your life mm. and mm. who you mm. were. Um, with uh, and clearly, you're okay to tell it. Do you mind? Mm. Do you mind just summarising it quickly? Uh, it relates to the motorcycle. Yeah, and the absolutely.
1: And it also leads on to how I got into punk and why I got into punk and what happened with school yeah. and whatnot. Uh, I was riding for school, and uh, a friend of mine uh, was the first one of us to get a big bike. You know, and we were riding from Biggin Hill uh, to where the school was in Westrum down quite a steep hill um, uh, coming off the North Downs Pilgrim's Road runs across the bottom and then there's a, 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 a long fast right hand bend uh, he went bombing past me uh, a road speed I guess of about 9500 something like that uh, with another friend of my back on the, on the back and pillion and it overwhelmed the quiet sort of basic suspension the bikes in the 70s had, uh, it was a Suzuki T250. Uh, so he had to take the bend wide, otherwise he'd go into a tank <laughs> slacker and tap him off um, and tried to ride out the bend, uh, coming the other way. There was an agricultural Land Rover and he went straight into the front of it Uh, I was about 100, 150 yards behind. i I'd I'd estimate the collision speed at about 130, 140 miles an
0: hour. When you combine the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, The bike, the first part of the front of it was just just a load of crunch metal. back was fine. Uh, uh, My friend who was riding was obviously dead. Uh, and then I was off its, its pre-mobile phone, uh, and um, uh, there was a sort of panic run to the local cottage, farmer's cottage, and uh, they'd heard the impact and already called the police, but they would take a fair old while to turn up. I didn't know what to do. I would put my bike on the centre stand with the indicator flipped on and tried to traffic, i just running on autopilot, it's not rational brain at all. It's, you know, what do you do in a circumstance like that? Uh, and um, later they uh, found Simon, the friend who was on the back in the hedge, uh, and he died about 12 hours later from um, severe um, head injuries, brain injuries.
0: Jesus, so both of them, yeah. both of them died and uh that's a hell of a thing to witness you said you were about 16 at the time yeah so, coming up to 17 yeah yeah and um hell of a thing to witness and we were, we were we were i mean did we were talking about this did you get any sort of therapy support at at the time because i think sometimes you know younger people if we get younger mm. listeners need to know What's changed in the last couple of generations? Was there was there much support for you? Absolutely
1: none whatsoever. In fact, uh, a lot of the teachers at the school, headmaster and rest of it, tended to see us bike boys as you know a bit of a nuisance, and you know it, the attitude was more or less to the rest of the school, you know, you know this will teach you not, you know, you know well, you know what do you expect is going to happen? You know, let that be a lesson to you, kind of thing, and more or less the expectation that. I will just go into school as normal, like but like, Literally, the very next day, uh, I rode into school, and uh, there's only one way to get to the school. So I had to ride past the same bend, and oh there was like a, a pink stain where all the matter from the head had been oh treated with sawdust and uh, squashed into the tarmac. And the line I was taking on the on the on the bend. Uh, you know, you had to run over it, and I remember thinking about that. You know, sorry about that, mate. It didn't, but it, you didn't, know, but it um, didn't
0: turn your cycle off, off riding the boats? No, it didn't.
1: It didn't. It's a really, really, really strange thing. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I mean, I suppose it's a practical aspect to it that in rural Kent at that time, you know, it's really important that you're able to get around one way or another. Uh, but it, but it, 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 it wasn't that. It was very much a kind of. Um, you know these things happen, I suppose. I mean, I you know, I'd, I'd imagine it's a bit like, um, you know, you have this sort of belief or superstition in, in the military that, that if a, a, a bullet's got your name on it, it's going to get you. You know, uh, and and if you if it doesn't get you, you know, there might not be a bullet with your name on out there. You know, if you see what I mean.
0: I do, I do, I do yeah. see what you mean, um, and and I think maybe at sixteen, it is, you know, it doesn't necessarily force you to to to, to change something. But uh, how did that imp how did that impact you starting toxic graffiti? What what's the direct line there? The intelligent just like you know a minute or so. What's well, the direct line
1: there? Uh, uh, Although I remember riding the bikes, obviously I was deeply messed up in the head, and nothing happened at school. An incident happened at school with the housemaster's first year of my secondary school. Uh, he was saying something I didn't agree with. Uh, I, by that time, I'd got a reputation for delinquency and non-engagement and all that kind of thing. I just classic thing, you know. You you, you know you, you see it in films and TV series, but it, it's it's true that happened. I you know. Getting into young adulthood, I thought, well, I don't have to take any of this anymore. I stood up, turned to my heels, and just told them to fuck off, and never went back to the school again. And how old uh, were you at that point? Uh, Seventeen.
0: So it's the start of your A levels. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and um, never did A levels. Actually, I eventually got into higher education via an access course, right? And uh, which is
0: which is definitely something we're go, going to get to. Hmm. So you weren't. So this is very similar to me because I did my hmm. O levels and I went back. Somewhat reluctantly, mm, but mm. my my parents had good in education, and it was expected of me. And I went back, and I, I actually already had jamming going. It just mm. I could not do it. And the first incident that happened, I didn't. I mean, it was just like, I I was just like, I can't do this. I've got my fans, I've got my life in music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you then a similar thing? You got some O levels. You went back with good intentions. Uh, but the school was just too much for you, or were... it, it was just
1: no, as I say, any kind of support or any kind of appreciation whatsoever. Um, punk had started to happen, if you like, uh, where I was, Biggin Hill. It was uh, about twenty odd miles from central London. About seven or eight miles, I think, from Bromley. So it's quite easy to start to get into those early scenes. And when I did, it was really just, as how can I put it, as a participant, I didn't have, because the scene at that time was amazing enough as it was and overwhelming enough as it was and intense enough as it was. I didn't particularly feel any need to, you know, be in a band or, or, or produce a zine or do any of those things for, you know, a good of about 18 months or so you know, a bit later on I'd sort of, you know, played bass not particularly well in a couple of bands but, you know, I, I, I didn't have, you know, any particular level of virtuosity and it's just your regular old punk bass lines and I couldn't see me doing it any better you know, uh, so I thought, well what can I do on this scene? And I thought, of well, you know although I dropped out of school in that way, I was thought I was, you know reasonably good with, you know, written word, I was... Um, you know, quite an autodidactic person in the sense that I would read avidly, even going back into childhood, you know, in subjects I was interested in. So, were, why not write about it? You know, of course, it would never ever have occurred to me at the time to think about writing for um, mainstream music press, uh, not out of any ideological opposition to it, but it just, I don't know, to me, that was something that somebody else did. It's, you know, that's people who studied, you know, journalism college or university went on to do that. I I know that wasn't entirely the case, and there's a few people who more or less did go straight into it, but but it's not a thought that I entertained. Um, uh, So then I did my first one, which was uh, Fanzine, which was No Real Reason, which was quite a generic, as I said at the beginning, quite, you know, yet another version of Sniffing Glue, really. Uh, uh, um, Eventually, that led me on uh, uh, as the... The the, the anarcho punks fledgling anarcho punk scene started to come into focus and I used the metaphor quite deliberately because it wasn't a sharply defined scene mm-hmm. it was a tendency within a certain kind of punk if you see what I mean I thought well you know this is this is this is something I'm I'm doing and this is something I'm into and this is something I can write about and be part about a uh, part of rather than you know you know simply being you know uh, a guy you know uh, in the marsh bit, or a guy standing at the back with a beer, or you right. know what I mean? So,
0: maybe, maybe something that really distinguished Toxic Graffiti, hearing you say this, is that um, you, having had an issue of a, of a previous fanzine, you got in, in a way, on the ground floor of the crass related anarcho punk scene. Mm-hmm. You were almost like the first zine that was well written. And clearly, uh, you know, you 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 you're you a smart person who wasn't supported by the system because none of us mm, were. Mm, mm. You were maybe the first scene that said, This is where I want to be, as opposed to, and I hadn't meant to have Craspy such a regular uh, uh subject matter mm. on this podcast, but it comes <coughs> up so much. And so unlike a Tony D with Ripton Torn who moved towards it, mm. uh you were like this is a good reason to start a new zine and actually have a focus.
1: That's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the the, the, the toxic graffiti came together. I, I, I don't know. I'm, i am not mean if I say someone's going to contradict me, but it was. Uh, I think it was probably the first one, uh, or, or you know, I'm going to blow my own trumpet here. The first one's worth reading. Uh, you know, the the the, the kind of st- the the. the st- Consciously tried to. This is what it was part of. It was part of this emerging <coughs> punk anarchism, right? Scene. Uh, so I don't think people said narco punk at that
0: time. I think what I remember was yeah, you know, yeah, it was uh, it was anarchy it was anarchy and peace. Um, musically, uh, what, what was it about Crass or any of the other acts? I mean, did were you going to see them, uh, boys and girls? You mentioned, you know, was. Uh, uh, <coughs> other acts that you went to see that you said well this is the music i'm totally into i mean it doesn't sound it sounds to some people like it would be the opposite of prog rock but was it for you no
1: you not really uh the um i mean i, I was always quite broad I had quite broad tastes with early punk you know in terms of bands and what they were doing and their their, their sonic presentation and whatnot. What kind of musical genres they were kind of referencing, quoting from in their work? I was always quite open minded about that. I suppose my personal favourite would have been that early kind of sort of street punk that of the, 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 you can probably trace the genealogy back to the earlier Clash, uh, <clears throat> sort of Rats, Menace, Slaughter, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, that had that sort of you know, hard, quite aggressive sound. You know, I mean, I'm good. This is a, a, a good two or three years before Oi, oh, yeah, I don't start. not me. start me about Oi. No. You know, but you had, they you don't have, to, mean, you have <laughs> to talk about it it's okay. <laughs> you know, um, um, uh, but it had that kind of hard edge and and and, and, and a strong lyrical engagement with, you know, you know, serious subjects, if you like, you know, an element of like a sort of militant protest song mm-hmm. to it, you know. So, you know, crash were a, a, a bit like that. They, their sound is you know, quite different. It's got that slightly arty edge, but the sort of, you know, the 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 core of your sort of classic early crash set would appeal to someone who had the kind of background that I had. Uh, uh, I didn't, I, I mean, a lot to be like, oh, the Clash is sold out, the Clash is sold out. I mean, I quite understood how you, they couldn't forever go on making, you know, different versions of the same album. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, some bands do. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you've got a pile of Ramones albums, you know, how do you sort them in date? It's really difficult right. in terms of musical progression. You know, so I can see with Rope how, why Clash went into that direction, but it, it still didn't, you know, tick that box. And then, of course, there's a whole CBS yeah. connection because of the other part of the anarcho-punk scene. It was it was taking you know the DIY aspect uh, uh, of the subculture that you know began, I think, with buscots and. From scratch yeah. and and run with it in like you know really innovative right. direction. There's no need to do any of this. You don't need to involve the mainstream music press. You don't need to involve major labels. Blah blah blah.
0: Right. So you, you love the whole underground aspect. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that was I the, did. Yeah. I did too. I loved being part of whatever that was the a DIY scene, uh, yeah. an underground scene, an independent scene. It all felt like this alternative culture we were living. I, you know, albeit you and I were maybe in different. Uh, you know ultimately we're actually in the same culture mm. at the time we might have felt we were in different areas of that culture and we sort of you know sometimes were and sometimes weren't where it where it is interesting is is you me tony d a whole bunch of us ended up getting printed by jolly so we, mm. we've all got something we have
1: in common <laughs> um and also i think from from you know you know from maturity. You know, from the from from the perspective of one '60s, you yeah. know, one can see continuities, whereas yeah. at the time you tend to see differences. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, uh, which I think is one of the things that led to that sort of internal tribalism within punk. That, yeah. that when you get into the, I don't like the word post-punk because no one ever saw it as post-punk. But certainly you had that thing of, you know, you know, rather than saying, oh, we're going to see, you know, you know, the, the jam one, week and clash the next or something. It become very much kind of like little sects you see what I mean yeah you know so I probably did drift into that a bit myself with the the anarchist Punk and the DIY and everything else although I I didn't perceive it so much as that at the time
0: right I was just
1: into what I was into you know, unless someone, you know, had a personal animosity against me, or if someone was a fascist or something like that, you know, I mean, whatever. The, the right. Different music, different bands, different scenes. I mean, I was cool with that, but it wasn't that I wasn't. But it wasn't what I was into passionately enough to write about and produce artwork over, right. and to
0: you know, right. dedicate a
1: lot of time and energy and you know, emotional investment in.
0: Let me flip the script ever so slightly. Mm. If um uh, Toxic Graffiti was successful, uh, so what what did you offer that other fanzines were not
1: offering? Uh, I think it had its own aesthetic, which I think related very much to what the scene was like at the time, you know, that that sub-culture, that sub-sub-scene, mm-hmm. I, I think it did quite a good job of of, of capturing the, the ethics, of politics mm-hmm. of that movement at that time in a way that probably other um, zines which were more... how could I... Ad- adhered more closely to your sort of, you know, standard fanzine format mm-hmm. uh, didn't. I mean, I never felt any need particularly to, you know, uh, feature a diversity of bands outside of that particular scene and... Uh, yeah, um, I I try quite strongly to build on that whole um, uh, um, collage and spray paint uh, um, visual aesthetic and technique that come out. I mean, via ultimately to people like John Hartfield, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, but obviously through G. Voucher and Crass and other people who were involved in that scene, you know. And I think I managed to do that. I think I think that's why it was successful in that. Way and I think also I tried to be, you know, quite. I didn't pull any punches, and I tried to be quite, you know, you know what you saw was what you got. You know, that's what that scene was like. That's how we spoke. That's what our attitudes. That's what our opinions were. You know, I I I didn't try to sort of you know dress it up particularly. So it had that kind of like raw honestly
0: about it it did I remember the one um, we, we were in uh, correspondence so all of us fanzines mm. were and as, as you mentioned you know, at the time it, I think it all felt quite competitive uh, and I understand that mm. how bands can be competitive because mm, mm, mm. it was very easy to sort of see something in another fanzine that you—I don't know—maybe got you or something—and and and jamming had a reputation for being commercial and and, and rightly Ooh. so. And I, uh, I remember the one thing you—I remember you taking me to task on uh, when I did an interview with the Beat, and it was right around the time they did uh, "Best Friends Stand Down," Margaret. It was like the fourth single Ooh. off their first album. They gave the proceeds to, I think, CND, and yeah. Uh, you you wrote saying, "Well, this is no different than big corporations that give money to charities. It's tax deductible. It's a tax deduction from you know, from making a profit." And I was like, "Man, these anarchists are cynical mothers." It,
1: it sounds cynical. It does sound cynical. Um, uh, I, I don't think actually it was from the point of view of someone in the sixties. It sounds incredibly cynical. You know, uh, uh, although I'm not saying that didn't happen on occasion. Um, you know, uh, uh, it, it was it was more a kind of naive sort of sincerity, you know. You know, uh, and I suppose uh, because obviously with, with Thatcher and Reagan and the whole Cold War stuff had hearted up, you know. Uh, uh, but it, I suppose one experience I would had was there was a time when uh, uh, bands had to do rock against racism, anti-Nazi. It was perfectly, perfectly good, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. But it become a kind of duty, mm-hmm. you know. It got to the ridiculous thing, like you'd have bands in the dressing room saying, sort of, you know, like blatantly racist things. But but they kind of had to do it for career. I will play a rock against Racist. I'm not going to mention any names, but you know, it it, it become a kind of you know, being there, done that checklist mm-hmm. thing. And I suppose at that time, I was that's kind of what I was getting at. Well, that's what I was assuming. I mean, I had no knowledge or evidence or whatever. You know so, and also when you're young, you, you, you tend towards sweeping statements.
0: I mean, that was that was the one correspondence I remember, but I think what a lot of people will remember, uh, toxic graffiti one well, you might have preferred, they remembered it for your writing. Was uh, what issue was it that you had a crass flexi? Um, five, right? I think,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and uh, in a, in a nutshell, because I really want to get onto your post fanzine
1: life, Ooh. how did that come about? uh uh graffiti was selling reasonably well um, uh, um the 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 issue that had the crass Lexi, it ended up you know some sort of enormous around sales i mean basically what any other crass record was sold at the time um but it came out of some conversations at dial house it's, this would be a good thing to do and it would obviously help the fans in terms of sale and profile and all the rest of it so we were talking about what track to record and they'd um, uh, written uh, I think it was Penny Rick lyrics uh, Tribal Rival Revel was a bit of a tongue twister at that time you know there was a lot of uh, uh, a huge, huge amount of violence scene. you know it, 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 sometimes you didn't even enjoy going to gigs anymore you just did it out of a sense of duty because he didn't want to give up
0: right it was we, we talked about this on other episodes it was you know, intensely violent it was you know, scary scary, scary um, sketch uh, scary yeah. yeah. shit so, so it was
1: about that and it was a way to get that message out to a wider audience um and yeah i mean it went ahead they they they, they Produced the track and it was pressed on an old floppy disk, and just better badges stapled it in, really. Right. You know, uh, uh, it increased the profile of the fans, but it came out of some quite. Because the thing at the time that with, with, with Crass at that time, and I, I kind of differentiate, I don't know how much sense this would make to anyone who, who was a band member of, of Crass at the time, but I tend to differentiate between the sort of. Early crass and later crass. Mm-hmm. Was, um, I think later crass, there was a number of problems with it. I think they started to bite off more than they can chew. It's constantly recording, constantly touring. Tensions within the band, of course, came to a fall that had been manageable before, but just, you know, and just did too much. I mean, really, probably it would have been a good idea if they had just hit the pause button for six months or a year and things, things through. but the earlier Crass, you know it was very very dynamic they, they were handling far fewer projects and so something like the, the top of graffiti, um, uh flexi uh, FlexiDisc idea they'd done a benefit they they'd done a benefit for uh, Conway Hall uh, a few months previously um, uh, so I already had a, a connection with the band uh, uh, through that benefit gig um, uh, which passed quite peacefully by the way because right. some of the other uh, Conway Hall things are quite notorious for the violence um, relatively peacefully you know so I had that connection with the band and it, it just it just come up with a discussion over well the dial house you know the, the inevitable green tea and
0: roll <laughs> Yeah, you
1: know and I thought, well, yeah, well, why not and, and so it just happened but it was it, because I think that the band hadn't taken on as anything like what they did Couple of years later, it was much easier for you know projects to be suggested quite casually in conversation and then be realised you know in a very short space of time.
0: So, did you say you did five issues total?
1: I did seven, if including the um, home produced one.
0: Okay. So why why stop doing it? Mm.
1: Interesting point. As I say, I think that. The nature of what Crass were doing um, began to change. I'd imagine I'm, I'm thinking back about mid eighty one going into eighty two, um, from being a very pleasant place to hang out, and that it, mm-hmm. it, it become quite, you know, quite unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, ever increasing number of people would visit the house, so it was a bit of a, you know, a revolving door being there. Um, but you were living there were you uh i was there was a period i think 80 going into early 80s but i more or less lived there yeah yeah uh, uh in a given week i probably spent about half or more than half a week there it just become kind of uncomfortable and one day i was i was um leaving dial house i hadn't had any big falling out with anyone any row or anything like that although it had started to feel like it was you know almost a bit of a duty and just suddenly clicked in my mind, and I thought, I thought, um, I'm, I'm not going to go back there. And I dismissed the thought, and then I was going back on public transport, and I thought, why, why, why did you think that? Um, I, I don't know, I thought, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to. I mean, there are things I could mention about particular people who were living. There were particular people in the band, but I'm not into sort of shit it's Too much, really. too much down
0: the line, really. Isn't you it? know, so a lot
1: that. of that's already done, as you can imagine, on yeah. social media. Uh, if I thought anything was particularly significant, you know, in a in a broader picture, I'd mention specifically what the incidents were. but right. I won't. Uh, and I thought, well, no, no, I'll just, I'll just pick up the ball and, and run with it myself. You right. Know, um, which so is what I of, did with the hand-reduced
0: issues. Yeah, it's something, it's something about moving yeah. on, mm. which I understand. Uh, and just, and right before we move on, mm. if, if of the seven issues you've put out, mm. what is if somebody was to read one piece that you wrote and you said this is the one that I <laughs> that, that I'm super proud of, or this was the best interview. What, what would it be?
1: On the back of number five, um, there's a, a rant poem I, I um, sometimes used to perform to discordant music. Sadly, I never recorded it. Maybe I should one of these days while I still got the breath. Uh, and it starts off uh, Ronald McDonald, this stupid fucking clown thinks we're all fucking idiots, <laughs> capitalist carnage. And then it goes into this like whole. Um, you know this this explores this world of of of, of, of atrocity and genocide and uh, the dark side of consumerism it wasn't actually particularly an animal rights piece or anything like that it's to do with you know, uh, the subtitle of Toxic was a, a reality of horror, which I think mm-hmm. goes back to the accident. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the, the behind the veneer of consumerism, one way or another, yeah. whether it's self-destruction or whether it's delusion or whether it's undermining, you know, political movements or, you know, exploitative mining or, you know, some kind of slavery or war. But underneath this this sort of civilized veneer of consumer capitalism is this seething pit of of horror and death and destruction. Right. And, and this up, was
0: all on the back cover. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, uh, I mean,
1: yeah. And it um uh, and it kind of that aspect of toxic graffiti wasn't a standalone, that kind of sort of went uh, that aspect of toxic graffiti as we talked about the crashing kind of went also into the direction that Throbbing Gristle was taking, you know, and right. in, um, early industrial that sort of having a really sort of dark existentialism. Right.
0: Well, wow. so we can tell from all of this that, and I think I probably could from back in the day, that despite yours being an you know, anarchy, mm. anarcho-punk or anarchy mm. and peace, fanzine, that you mm. were you were a smart guy. But you left school at sixteen. Mm. We got that in common. I have only just started <laughs> as I get close to sixty, going for my degree. Mm. Uh, you went for it a lot quicker. Well, I want to ask you, and this will sound possibly out of the blue unless I've, mm. I've, I've offered uh, a hint during my introduction. What year was the uh, was it called the Velvet Revolution in Bahrain? The Arab
1: Spring uprising was twenty eleven.
0: Yeah, and when did that was that Bahrain was part of that in twenty eleven? Did it um, uh,
1: all of those countries where people have this idea that, that the Arab world? Um,
0: I saw um, it more as something that moved west to east almost, but I might not be wrong. I don't
1: about. think it's much. Of t- all, all of those struggles had a deeper history yeah, of than what happened started to happen towards the end of twenty ten. Uh, and 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 twenty eleven. I mean, whether it's Tunisia, whether it's Egypt, the, you know, Syria, Bahrain, all those, you know, you know, wherever it was, there were long-standing struggles and of grievances, course. inequalities. And
0: twenty eleven no? was the year of the so-called Arab Spring, or it felt like the Arab Spring at the time. Now, the question being, yeah. Well, I asked that, and you, you did correct my pronunciation. So it's Bahrain.
1: Bahrain. It's just I I I, I, uh, I My first degree was in modern languages, and I majored in Arabic. And my PhD was in the literatures, Arabic and English literatures of the British occupation of Egypt, eighteen eighty two to nineteen fifty six. So wow. and then I lived in the Arab world. For did you time do? So did I, you
0: take that before nine eleven?
1: Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Well, my residency in in the the Gulf was bracketed between nine one one and uh, the Arab Spring, about ten years. Wow. That's a really interesting time. The well, in the middle So of the this invasion. this is what yeah. we sort of wanted to get,
0: get out this sort like life after fanzines. Mm. Um you didn't just go for like, oh, I think it'd be nice to have a degree. You kinda of went full in. I mean, that's like some serious for me, that sounds like some really serious courses. I'll
1: be completely confessional about it. I, I uh, 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 uh The toxic reasoning deals't particularly going anywhere. i got into a world of uh, drink and drug abuse that ended up with me you know being virtually homeless uh, and uh, I got into religion in the form of converting to islam in uh, in the middle of the 1980s. Uh, and uh, 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 why? I, 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 uh, I suppose because of sort of, I wanted that kind of straightness that mm-hmm. you would get from, uh, 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 I think Rushdie once said that he had a God shaped hole in his heart. I, I wouldn't describe myself as an atheist now, but I describe myself as a radical um, um, agnostic, I suppose. But I, 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 I was craving that clarity if you see what I mean, that that, that religion got. And and of course oh, Islam at that time had that had that big association with anti-colonial struggles and you know, right. American.
0: At the same time mm. I wouldn't have thought uh, you know, somebody who'd lived at Dial House and had been part of that whole anarchy peace movement was going to go over to to a religious dog yeah, a, a religion of any kind. Mm. It would have seemed seemed to me, aren't you all an atheist, isn't that part of the package? It's it's You know, it's anarchy, it's peace, it's veganism, it's animal rights, and it's atheism, you know, it's anti-consumerism. I grew
1: grew up in a very hedonistic household. Um, uh, 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 One side of my family uh, uh, had undergone a false conversion um, from Judaism to Catholicism a few generations before, um uh, the other side of my family didn't have that conversion experience, but they all regarded my dad as a oh, religion that's a load of old bollocks, like don't don't get interested in it, don't get involved in it and that's all a lot of nonsense, get on with your life and, and they were very, very hedonistic people, all night parties mm-hmm. and all that kind yeah. of thing, you know, literally, you know, dawn to dusk and dusk to dawn. Um, and 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 I suppose it's one of those things. If you have that upbringing, religion's the unknown. You don't have that like strict religious upbringing that you're rebelling against. If we, it's 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 a kind of negative image of that. Well, I'm of, mean, you know. I'm inclined
0: to ask ask you now straight off. Are you still consider yourself
1: Islamic? Uh, it's an interesting question. No, no, not at all. Lapsed. Not in not in. No, 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 I, I, I think there was an, ele- there was an element of, of, of my involvement in that that was very, very sincere. Uh, um, I would say, religion, my own. Right, right. But, but I, mean, I, wouldn't I wouldn't describe myself as an as, a, as an atheist in the, in that crude kind of Richard Dawkins sense of the word. Right. You know. Nor am I hung up about guilt and sin and the afterlife and all right. that stuff. And I do understand, but, you know,
0: Islam has been uh, really mm-hmm. uh, popular with uh, prisoners. Mm. Um, you know, there's a big recruiting movement mm. in in uh, among. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the subjects I may not know too much about, but I know the basics. From living in the states that mm. you know a lot of African American prisoners saw mm. in Islam, uh, yes, that structure that they mm. hadn't they had, had the exactly structure and that clean state. living, yeah. and, and there'd be a reason to follow it. And obviously, there's a long, long, long history there within that uh, that, that culture. So I understand some of that. But again to asking you know the question about Bahrain uh mm. is you were caught up in that. Yeah. And uh that's a journey to go from Writing about you know the theoretical revolution we all wanted that was not Margaret Thatcher. We wanted something a little bit opposite of Margaret Thatcher, oh, oh, oh. and then getting caught up in a real one. What did you witness there? What were you teaching out there? What were you doing okay. in the And uh, what did you witness?
1: When I first went out there, I was teaching uh, uh, comparative literature, comparative cultural studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, however, uh, it, there was a strong movement at that time. Uh, Very top down, you know, to radically change and develop the whole education system from kindergarten to Mm -hmm. PhD. Because, you know, the, the Gulf states were had to think about post oil economic future. So it was all driven yeah. by all that stuff yeah. from the Shakes and everything else. I think in Bahrain it came out of a McKinsey report that said, look, do something about the education system or the countries had it. Right. Um so then I got involved in, you know, how to shape higher education in a way that was more Um, student-centered and student-focused, more active and participatory learning, which of course that whole set of pedagogies goes back through people like Paolo Ferreira, uh, to the anarchist tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, although not the sort of thinking you would shout from the rooftops in a country that in many ways is a monarchical dictatorship. Um, But yeah, it was really, really interesting. Of course, you get involved in the the lives of the students, uh, uh, because I believe very strongly that It it couldn't be, you know, a top-down thing. It had to come from the grassroots. You need to understand why education needed to be very different. Um, And as I say, the Arab Spring uprisings. They had uh, all all of them, all in different ways. Sometimes the issues were different from one country to another, but they were all like long-standing political struggles, long-standing grievances, whether it was against a dictatorship or whether it was against colonial or neo-colonial hangover or... The domination of global politics, all kinds of things, you know, fed into those um, movements. But one of the things in the year or so before the Arab Spring uprising in 2011 is that in many countries, young people, university-age people started to adopt a different approach to what yeah. previous generations, because of the struggle of uh, in Bahrain goes back to when it was a British protectorate. <clears throat>
0: it's a very small place, isn't it, population-wise? It's,
1: it's a couple of million, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So what we've we've only got about five five minutes or so left before they actually you know, a little bit more than that before they kick us out of this lovely pod. What did you um, what did you witness there? And how did that change your views well, about <coughs> stuff that you've written about back in the fanzine days? Uh,
1: uh, okay, uh, so the, the 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 modality of resistance that people adopted there had two strong influences. One was from the first Intifada in Palestine, which was in a a much had that kind of street creativity about it, and the other came out of Occupy and those kind of movements in the West, yeah, right, okay, Uh, uh, which also have a genealogy that goes back to things like Stock City, yeah, so it's all to do with like street art, yeah, performance, graffiti, um, taking over prestige social space, yep. a peaceful resistance or nearly peaceful resistance, uh, mass mobilisation, all those uh, general strikes, all this kind of very, very anarchist very, yeah. you know, and so uh, the main occupation <laughs> site in Bahrain, Bahrain's Tahrir Square, um, was the Pearl Roundabout, the big monument. Yeah. Gulf unity, ironically enough, it was occupied. Oh my god, it's like you see your sort of anarchist dreams come true. It's right. like people like autonomously self organizing independently of the state, the state's relevance, right. the food, the sanitation, the absolutely everything. You know, and that kind of like reawakened in my mind the, the kind of things that I used to write about and in a much lower key right. did with the DIY stuff. But this was on a massive scale. Out of a population of a couple of million, I mean, you'd have street demonstrations of you know uh, over a hundred thousand wow. people. Wow, wow, absolutely, five percent of the population. Yeah, absolutely, right it's like millions of. I mean, even the even the biggest demonstrations in the UK and against the Iraq or against um,
0: poll tax, maybe
1: poll tax, the uh, nuclear disarmament yeah. stuff, you know, didn't approach that in terms of percentage of no. population. Although, although
0: it's a smaller geographic country, yeah. I think,
1: and uh, it was. Eventually cleared with lethal force. People had their heads blown off. um, Did you witness that? Not the first one, I didn't know. Uh, However, the occupiers came back. That was cleared again. The second time it was cleared, the Saudi military came over the causeway uh, and a very, very vicious counter-revolution ensued. Uh, there was attempts to occupy the financial district and the diplomatic area and the university campus on which I worked, and I was a witness to the suppression of the. I mean, I in the sense I was actually there while it was happening. Uh, uh, was uh, that was
0: that more violent than anything we would witness in the UK? Because I saw, obviously. I've seen much, I've seen skulls get cracked in the UK by the police at demonstrations for sure, and on picket lines. It was was it, that you're talking about people were killed. You're talking about
1: unarmed protesters having their brains blown out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one uh, with some protesters being <laughs> arrested, and they were advancing towards uh, a, a military blockade. Uh, carrying a Bahroni flag which is kind of contested whose flag is it, you know. Uh 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 Silmi uh, meaning meaning peaceful, peaceful, unarmed, peaceful. You know, and then all of a sudden there's that staccato like that, of, of of small arms fire, automatic rifle fire. And then there were people some dead straight away, others with severe head injuries, bullet wounds to the chest and abdomen rolling around. Uh, 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 and this was repeated on, uh, uh, all over the island uh, when um, uh, people tried to confront the security forces. They retreated back into their sort of village areas rather than the big mass occupations. There's the carpeting the place with CS gas, tear gas, all kinds of things like that uh carpet gassing, so you're not actually you're firing tear gas things directly at someone's head so that you're 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 turning it into a lethal weapon sure. all that kind of um and these
0: are students who are like uh my my son's been sitting here oh. quietly with us uh, uh and patiently for the last few minutes and he's eighteen and these are people effectively the same age just yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, university age yeah. Yeah. Um and one of the things that happened then you see because I'd got into that whole higher education development thing, I, I started to be like sort of, you know, it's the nearest I got in my life to sort of, you know, respectable professional career. Uh, uh you know, I was involved with sort of, you know, quite high level meetings, including with the Ministry of Education there and external consultants and things, and I was very much that. Um you know, very much part of that, this is it, you know, I'm going to go into a sort of higher education management and whatnot. Uh, if anyone ever said to me at that time, oh, you might die when did talk to me, I said, oh no, oh, oh no, no, people often ask me that, of course yeah. not, no, nothing to do with me. And uh, 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 it was when that happened, because I came back to the UK quite traumatised, I, 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 I had bad... Conflict-induced post-traumatic stress. This all took me a few years to get over. over Major depression. Um, uh, and uh, uh, what, as that was happening, it was like my punk consciousness that I'd always kept suppressed. This is what interests me about punk—not simply, you know, the fashion or a kind of music, but as a, a an organising principle or a founda- a foundational principle in your life that, you know, you know, uh, no matter what you're doing in life. If you were that sincerely at, it, at the time, that will come back, and that will come back, and that will be your moment. That's one of the reasons I decided to stay with the university. They had option Western faculty were sort of bust out because they were aware of what was going to happen with the suppression of the occupation of the university, and uh, I, I declined to because I had that sense that you know this is this is this is this is, this is a piece of history. This is my destiny. You know, I, I, I must witness that. So it was only after that that I started using whatever, you know, scholarly skills I've got to write about punk. I was not one of these people like punk scholar in the of someone who does a PhD on punk or something. I did it, completely different stuff, you know, but it's, it's, it's that set of experiences.
0: So where can people read your writing now? Um, there's so much more we could talk about no. but we are we are out of time where can people read your writing now and and um, am I right yeah, I believe to some degree you've resurrected Toxic Graffiti yeah I've
1: got a lot of work to put up online this is what I was working to 5 in the morning on. so there's a lot of stuff I need to get up in the next couple of weeks because we're off on a trip somewhere uh, so yeah there's the Toxic Graffiti blog uh, um, there's some academic work I've done uh, I suppose relevant to this is the stuff on punk Um I got a, a chapter that explores kind of reflectively or, or ethnographically, if you like, the um, uh, um, journey I was telling you about, the, the, the re-discovering of my, my, my punk subjectivity right. in a book that came out on Manchester University Press, Punk Scholars Network. Uh, I've also done some work when I used to work at the um, um, Institute of Education, University of London on education and extremism and ways to counter extremism within education uh, building on various experiences I've had but yeah uh, it's a it, it
0: is it's it's a fascinating it's a truly fascinating journey you, know, you start out <clears throat> you start out as just a young sort of like mm-hmm. yes you know I'm into the you know bring us to revolution I'm into anarchy peace etc and then you see a peaceful you know anti-authoritarian Revolution happen, and you see the counter revolution being when it's crushed violent oh, oh by the
1: way that's another thing I found you know you know a lot very naive about narco-punk in the day the, the 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 yeah, the state will leave you alone when you're not a th- really a threat to the state um, uh, seeing a state with its gloves off fighting yeah. for its survival and being prepared to do absolutely anything in order to survive. And the, the lengths that will, they will go to in terms of, as you I know, say, shooting dead unarmed protesters, but other things as well mass imprisonments, right. um, uh, uh, pretty executions, disappearances. You know, I mean, you you, 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 a state fighting for its survival is, I mean, you need to be pretty damn serious. And it makes you realise that, you know, you know, just how hard. Historical revolutions that did happen—it's very ha- easy, perhaps, to, to be hard on, say, know, the Bolsheviks in Russia. But if you, you know, it's almost as if that opposition to the state creates a kind of, in order to, in order to vanquish the state, you have to take on some of its own methods. You know, and it's a sobering thought, and it, 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 it shows the limitations of that kind of radicalism you know, that I was involved in with a narco punk.
0: I'll put the links to Toxic Graffiti's online presence in the show notes. It's not quite spelled the way you might think, or indeed the website isn't quite as you might think. And I'll also let you know where you can find Mike if you'd like to contact him. I'd like to thank him for bearing with me a second time on the interview process and coming down to Brighton and, in fact, bringing a tape recorder with him. And I'd also like to thank my son, Noel, my youngest son, Noel, uh, for allowing that one-hour interruption on our day out in Brighton so I could conduct that interview. Noel uh, composed and performed the theme music that you hear um, all over this show and a damn fine job he did of it as as well, especially at the age of 16 or 17 as he was right then. And thanks also to everybody at Omnibus who put together the Jamming Compendium, which uh, launched this podcast and they initially uh, backed this podcast for a year and to Greg for working on the logos. You can find me Tony Fletcher at tonyfletcher.net. My other podcast is called One Step Beyond. It's more about lifestyle travel the outdoors I'll put a link to that in the show notes please do the usual like review share subscribe all of that I know it helps and I'll see you in a month from this one depending of course when you're listening it'll be mid-June 2023 and uh, it'll be uh, with Mickey and with Claire and I hope you'll join me for the journey then in the meantime you know keep on keeping on